as an introduction, if I said to my wife, you are a prominent person in my, in my life, I think she'd be worried. If I said to her, you are the preeminent person in my life, I think she would be really happy and um, appreciative. You see, the word prominent means one of a number. The word preeminent implies the only one. So when I say to my wife that you're preeminent in my life, she can feel really happy and, and glad that, hey, I'm, the only, I'm the, his only wife. But if I said you're prominent, she'll be thinking, hmm, who else is there? It's the same with us and our relationship with God. Do we just say, God, I love you, God, I've given my heart to you, and it's just in words only, or have we committed our whole life to him? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20, it says, The Lord is your life. And the, in the Bible, and even studying this particular passage of Scripture, we really need to look at the little words like in, for, is, with, and all these sorts of things because they have just so much meaning. Now, when the Lord says, the Lord is your life, that means he's indwelling me and that I'm living for him. It's not just meaning that he's out somewhere, out there somewhere, and I'm being a good boy and obeying what he's telling me to do. So, the Bible says to live is Christ, not to live for Christ. When we look at Mary and, Mary and Martha in, um, in the Gospels, we see that Mary had the need to be occupied with Jesus, whereas Martha was being occupied for Jesus. So you can see here a quite a distinction between um, what these two women were trying to do in um, their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, wanting to listen to all he had to say and to um, uh, take in what, what uh, he was what he was saying, whereas Mary was running, sorry, Martha was running around doing this or that and making sure the meal was wet ready and missing out on all those things. So as a Christian, we would like Jesus to be preeminent in our life. To live is Christ and we need to be occupied with him. So for a changed person, the first Adam is dead, just as it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the old Adam, the first Adam has passed away, is dead, but now we're living with, yeah, in Christ. So we're not what we used to be. So when we look at the book of James, just to um, have, have a very quick recap here, it's a very practical book. And the titles that we've actually given the messages for this coming month or two 
uh, testing of faith by trials. That was in chapter 1. And then last week, in the first part of chapter 2, we had testing of faith by loving others or favouritism. Today's message is testing of faith by works. And then what we have to come is testing of faith by speech, testing of faith by humble wisdom, by worldliness, sovereign submission, patience and prayer. So there's quite a number of different topics, but the emphasis is testing of faith in trials. But when we actually look at the book of James, we can see that the word faith isn't used all that often. Up till now, it's been used four times, and there's one other time in the, in the whole remainder, chapter 3 to the end of the book, where the word faith is used. But in this passage, it's used 11 times. So I think we need to concentrate on the word faith and what it means to us before we progress too much further. This passage of scripture has always been a controversial passage. It's been a difficult passage. And when we look at uh, the teachings of Paul in his apostles, like the book of Romans, we read, man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. So we're saying that justified by faith only, not by what we do. But here in James chapter 2, verses 14, verse 17, verse 26, it says, Faith by itself, it does not have works. If it does not have works, is dead. So here we have a contradiction. And of course, we all believe that the, the Bible's the inspired word of God. So what's he saying here? Is God contradicting himself? I'd say not. When we actually look at what Paul's trying to present in like the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, some of his other epistles, what we see Paul doing here is first of all, he is um, approaching legalism. So here we're talking about people that are saying, well, to be a Christian, we need to have faith and something else. And we can see, like in the book of Romans, he, where he talks about uh, circumcision and obeying verse, ver various aspects of the law. Here Paul is saying, it's not all about that, it's faith only. But then when we go to James, here we're talking about a practical book. And as we can see in the passage, which we'll come to, we can see things where it says, if someone says, you see, show me, all these things we're talking about. Um, James is talking to men, not to God. So Paul is approaching from the aspect of us and our relationship with God. James is talking about our relationship with men. And at the same time, Paul is um, addressing the problem of legalism. James is approaching the problem of antinomianism. And all antinomianism means is somebody saying, I believe in God, but at the same time doing what they like. They don't show any fruit of what they actually believe. 
So they're still continuing in sin. They're still doing what they like. That's an antinomian. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, um, uh, it's all by grace, through faith, not by works. And James says that in um, verse 14, what can a prophet he who has faith does and not have works, can faith save him? So we, here we have two opposites, but we're addressing uh, two different aspects. Over right on, on one side, we have legalism. The other side, we have freedom and do what you like. James and Paul are standing back to back addressing these particular issues. So in Ephesians chapter 8, it says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. James chapter 2 verse 26 says, Faith without works is dead. And in the early church, Martin Luther had a problem with this, these uh, particular scriptures. And he actually called James the epistle of straw. And at one stage he uh, wanted to cut it out of the canon of scriptures. He said, oh, I just don't believe it. I believe Paul, but I don't believe what James is saying. But we really need to focus on uh, the context of what James is saying here. But before we continue any further, there's two words that are used prolifically right through this passage of Scripture. The first one is faith, and the second one is works. And really, we just need to have an understanding of what these particular concepts are before these words mean, before we progress too much further. In the Greek, the word faith is either the word pistis or pistuo. And that means to have a credence, a conviction, an assurance, a belief. But we maybe we could extend that to something a little bit further and say it's a submission. The word convic uh, conviction means to say, yes, I believe it, but um, I believe a whole bunch of other things as well. I, have, I still have a conviction for that. But be submitted to something means to be, that you are wholly and completely given over to that thing. In the Old Testament, obviously, uh, this is before the, the age of grace, the uh, Israelites were under law. They were basically obeying God through duty. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing in the time of Jesus. And in fact, this is what Paul was before he um, met Christ on the road to Damascus. And really when we look at uh, Luke chapter 18, this is the story where uh, there's the Pharisee and the publican in the temple. The Pharisee saying, well, I've been a good man. I've um, given my tithes. I... Um, uh, don't steal, I don't murder, I don't do all these things. So he's obeying the law to the letter. And he might be a good man. He might be the very best of men. He might not have done anything wrong. But at the same time, he's condemned. So here we have a good man that thinks he's 
doing all the right things, and loving God, etc., but he's going to hell. At the same time, we have the publican who knows that he's done wrong and he's beating his chest saying, I'm a real, uh, look at all these sins that I've done and I repent and give himself to Christ and he's the one who is saved. So when we look at the, uh, the word faith, it is to believe in something and that something is Christ. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. Now here we have two words, but there's two different concepts to the words. Grace is the thing that we're, um, we're saved by, but faith is the mechanism that we're saved through. So I think of it a bit like a... Um, uh, a water pipe or a hose in the garden. You know, you've got a thirsty plant or something that's, uh, that needs a drink. Grace is like the water that's flowing through the hose. The hose is what's directing the water onto the plant. So really, it's a mechanism. It's uh, the instrument of our salvation. Faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. But it's only through the mechanism of faith and us believing that we are saved. So when we look at this, um, uh, yeah, sorry, I've jumped ahead of myself. Okay, just a few extra comments on that. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. Also, faith and not my righteousness. Uh, sorry, faith is not my righteousness. Faith is our, what links us to the righteousness of Christ. Faith is not an object. The object is Christ and his righteousness. So once again, that's just reinforcing the, uh, the concept of a, uh, an instrument, that what faith is. The word works, a little bit easier. It's the Greek word ergon, which means to do, to act, to do labour or to work. And the interesting thing here is in the Old Testament, trying to keep the, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments and the, the laws of the Old Testament, the works of the law condemns. It's only through good works that um, we're truly blessed. But um, looking at the Old Testament, we have people trying to do their duty in obeying the law. But for us as Christians, we actually have something a lot higher than that. If you go and read chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew and you look at the Beatitudes and the way the Christian life is meant to be, it goes far beyond what the law is asking us to do. So when we look at this passage, it can be broken up into two sections. Verses 14 to 20 is really like a question and answer time. Uh, James is asking some questions, some of them are rhetorical questions with uh, implied answers, but uh, it's like he's speaking to somebody out there and um, saying, well, what, uh, how, how do you behave and what are you doing? And here he's talking about dead faith. 
verses 21 to 26, we're looking at demonstration of faith. We're actually looking at some examples here. We're looking at Abraham, we're looking at Rahab, and we're looking at uh, the body, body without the spirit. So here we're looking at demonstration of faith or living faith. So first of all, in addressing the uh, subject of dead faith, the first thing it says in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? This is claiming that he has faith. This is, it could be, a false profession. He's substituting words for deeds. There might not be anything in his life that might show that he's a Christian. But he says, oh, I'm still a Christian and I still believe. He says he has faith. So what he's saying here is that can faith save him? Can the fact that he just says that he has faith or faith, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, can that save him? And as I mentioned earlier, this is a rhetorical question. And I think what James is implying here is the answer is no. So just because he says he has faith, that is powerless to save. It's an empty confession. We can actually go back to the Gospels and look at what uh, Jesus has to say with regards to um, say faith that does not save. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus says we need to show fruit worthy of repentance. So here we're saying, well, if we are saved, we need to be able to show some fruit of some sort. If we go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and this is where it's talking about the light under a bushel. Uh, if the light's not shining before men, or in other words, we're not showing good works, then how can we be saved? What's even more challenging is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. That's where Jesus is saying people come to him and saying, Lord, Lord, and yet they, they, they deny him. So just because you're saying that you're a Christian or that you love the Lord does not necessarily mean that, uh, that you are a Christian. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, this is, um, it says that men believed, but Jesus wouldn't commit to them. So if they're believing and Jesus is not committing to them, there must be something lacking in their faith or in their belief. In Matthew, John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, it says Jesus here is talking to Nicodemus. He says, we must be born again. So there must be a change taking place in our life, not just saying that uh, we're a Christian that um, makes us a, a true Christian. And then in John chapter 8, verses 30 to 34, 32, this is where it's talking about uh, Jesus is a vine and we're the branches, that we need to abide in his word. So just to put it into uh, a modern uh, setting, we can say just because we come to church on a Sunday morning and we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we um, listen to the sermon and then 
when we go outside and go out our merry way for the other six days of the week, we've totally forgotten about what's happened here. Can we say that we truly are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? So in verse 14, we can see here that um, just having faith alone is powerless to save. In verse 20, just jumping on a little bit, do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Or another word for this word here is useless. So here we're saying, well, okay, just because we've got faith, does that mean that uh, we're being fruitful, that we can, um, we're, we're, we're showing our faith? No, it doesn't. We need to have the works. And finally, in verse 26, it says, faith without word works is dead also. And that word dead in verse 26 is the word necros, which is where we get the word, um, oops, I've jumped ahead here. Just one moment. We'll come back to it. It just means dead like a corpse, okay? Totally dead, something that's rotten, something that's, that's uh, of no use at all. So as we progress, we can see that, first of all, James has asked a question here. Can faith save him? And then he goes on to give an example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warmed and filled. But you do not give the things that they needed for the body. What does it profit? And the interesting thing here is apparently in the Greek there are different tenses to how the, um, this passage can be, uh, this, um, passage can be uh, said. So if you say, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, that you can use like an upper voice, you can use a middle voice or a lower voice. And um, I do know from some of my experiences in China that the way you actually say a word will actually have a t make the word have a totally different meaning. So here in the same sense in the Greek, just through the tone of how this is said can um, have totally different meanings. So when you say to go away, be warmed and be filled, if it's in a, in a high tone, basically you're being sarcastic. You're saying, well, go away, I don't want anything to do with you. Uh, why should I give anything to you? And that sort of sense. If it's in the middle tone or medium tone, it's basically a tone of indifference. and saying, well, uh, yeah, I'm not going to give you anything, but you know, just go away, somebody else might. And in the lower tone, it's in a sense of um, just saying, well, well, I hope there's somebody out there to give you something. So depending on the tone, you can take this, uh, this passage in, uh, in different contexts. And I certainly hope that uh, as a Christian that um, we wouldn't, wouldn't even use that sentence in the first place. But certainly, depending on, on how, how you say it, can uh, have a different, totally different impact on what, what you're actually saying to that person. 
And um, just to fill you in, we might not know what we're talking about at the next men's group, but I can certainly tell you what was at the last men's group. We're actually speaking on Matthew chapter 5, which talks about the sheep and the goat nations. So here we're talking about um, people that were coming before the, uh, the judgment throne of Christ and um, some had um, given drink to those that were thirsty, fed those that were hungry, visited those in prison and Jesus said to them in this passage, well, if you've done that to the, the least of these people, you've also done it to me. So in a sense, the... Um, the sheep nations didn't even know what they were doing. They said, when did we do these things? And Jesus said to them, well, if you've done it to the least of these people, you've done it for me. And here we can see an expression of good works. But with the goat nations, they said, well, we, we love you, Lord, and, and um, we believe in you, etc." But Jesus said, well, when have you fed the hungry? When have you... Uh, given the thirsty drink when have you gone to prison and um, to uh, meet someone in prison and just by not doing it they were th showing that by not doing their works that uh, they were actually condemning themselves so even christians can be deceived we can see here that we can come to church and say, well, Stuart, you're telling me all this stuff. This is not me telling you. This is James telling you. We can say, well, okay, I do believe and I've uh, given my heart to the Lord. I can tell you the day that I did it and all these sorts of things. But um, at the same time, there hasn't been any change in my life since. In Titus 1 verse 16... It says that um, <coughs> people profess to know God, but by the works, their works, they deny him. Okay, so you can say it, but you need to show it through works. So you can go to the movies, you can go to real tearjerker movie, you can cry and, and all the rest of it, but you can come away, walk out into the street, see someone in need or whatever, and turned a blind eye and, and walked down the other side. So in verse 16, it's saying that we need to have a change in our nature. So as we continue on, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what we're saying here is you can profess to have a faith in in Christ but without works it's alone faith by itself faith alone if it does not have works is dead John Calvin said faith alone justifies but the faith which justifies is not alone that's faith alone justifies but the faith which justifies is not alone. So here we can see the two sides of the coin. We can see here Paul, in, like in the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, saying that it's faith alone that will justify us. 
that we're saved. But here we can also see in James, the faith which justifies is not alone. Verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Here again, once again, this is just saying. um, Okay. And in this particular context, the, uh, the Greek language does not have any punctuation. So really, when you look in your Bible and it says, you have faith and I have works, start quotes, end of quotes, this could actually be James saying to somebody, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my f- faith by my works. So we could actually put quotes around the whole thing and say this is James saying something to somebody else. So here we have a shallow conviction. Show me, display, exhibit, demonstrate. I need to see fruit. That's basically what James is saying there. So in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works as death, this implies that as a believer there needs to be subsequent works. And of course, the subsequent works don't save us. But it's the fact that we're now a child of God, we now believe him, we now love him, we just want to do good works. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. This is really interesting context because... What we're saying here is that as a believer, if you only say you believe, that the demons are actually one up on you. They actually believe and tremble. If we look, and of course we don't have time to this morning, at what constitutes ourselves. We're made up of something you can see and touch, our body, we have a soul, we have a spirit. And the characteristics of our soul is actually our mind, our will, and our emotion, or our heart. Okay, mind, will, and emotion. What we're saying here is, well, in my mind, because I say, I believe, the demons are one up because they also believe with their mind, but they also tremble. So that's their emotions. So that's two out of three. So the demons are believing with their mind and feelings. And the demons, when we actually look uh, at various scriptures, we can see that the demons do believe in the Bible. They believe that Jesus was the Christ. They believe he was the Messiah. They believed that God created the heavens and the earth. And they believe there is a hell waiting for them. If we go to Matthew chapter 8, verses 29... Basically, the demons are saying to Jesus, hey, it's not time yet. Have you come to torment us? So they know exactly where they're going. They know exactly who Jesus is. They do know in their heart where they're going. And the reason 
where they're going, as opposed to um, those that believe and have accepted Christ as Saviour. But really what James is saying, we want to do one step better than the demons even. They believed with their mind and they believed with their emotions or their heart. But at the same time, he's saying that we need to express our belief through works as well. That's by doing. That's our will. So really we're looking at the complete soul of the man in um, submission to Christ in believing through our mind, our will and emotion. We can actually look at chapter, act, uh, chapter 2 of Acts. If we look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the first thing that happened was Jesus, Peter spoke to the people. So in their mind, they believed. In verse 13, it says they were cut to the heart. Here's their emotions coming out. They were cut to the heart, so the mind and then their emotions. And then also in verse 13 it says, what shall we do? They're saying, okay, I'm a true believer now. I've accepted Lord Jesus as Lord and Saviour. What do you want me to do? That's their will. <clears throat> then in verse 20, do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And again, this word dead, I mentioned earlier, is the word necros, necrotic. It means it's a corpse, it's lifeless, or it's gangrenous. So this is something pretty horrible and, and, and not nice. So faith without works is dead. It's totally useless. <clears throat> if we look at um, Acts chapter 8, we have the story there of Simon the sorcerer. This is quite interesting because he saw the miracles that were being performed by the apostles and um, people coming to Christ and saw the effects of what was happening when the Holy Spirit came on them. And um, he actually saw this and in verse 13 it says, he believed, he was baptised and he continued with the, prophet, the, the apostles. So he believed, he was baptised, and he continued with the, with the apostles. But in verse 18, he came up to Philip and said, I want to give you some money so I can do what you're doing. I want to be able to do exactly what you're doing when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody that um, when they're saved, I want to be able to replicate this, uh, the Holy Spirit. And in verse 21 it says, his heart was not right in the sight of God. So in verse 13 it says he believed, he was baptised and he continued. But in verse 21 it says his heart was not right in the sight of God. And he was told to go away and repent and pray. And in verse 23 it says he was bound by iniquity. So here we have a man that was believing, was still bound by iniquity or sin, uh, thought he was a believer, but in actual fact he was still in his unbelieving state. In verse 21 of this passage, we're now changing gear. So here we've looked at what it was like to be, have a dead faith. Now we're going to look at 
a living faith. And it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? So here we're saying Abraham was justified by works. If we go back to Romans chapter 4, it says... Abraham was justified by faith. So here, once again, is the contradiction showing itself. But in actual fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 2, it says there, Abraham had something to boast about through his works. But it says, but not before God. Okay? All God was interested in is faith, not works. So justified by faith before God in verse four, chapter 4, verse 3, it says in the book of Romans, Abraham was justified by faith before God. In James chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So here we have the same verse being used in three different passages of Scripture. Back in Genesis chapter 15, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, and in James chapter 2, verse 23. In this particular verse, same verse, two contexts. Justified by works, justified by faith. When was Abraham justified by faith? He was justified by faith back in Genesis chapter 15. At that stage, he'd just come out of um, Haran and the um, God who called him out of the city of Ur to go to Canaan. He was probably about 75 years old at that stage. So that's when God had justified Abraham through faith, through his belief. When was he justified by works? If we go back to verse 21 of this passage, it says, Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. When was that? Abraham was probably about 115, 120 years old by this stage. So we're talking a 40 to 50 year gap between when he was justified by faith and when he was justified by works. So here in this passage, saying Abraham is justified by works when he offered Isaac, not back when he came out of... Um, uh, the Chaldeans. So he, here we have this 40-year uh, gap. And what we're saying here in verse 22, do you see that faith was working together wi with his works? So here we're seeing before men, God, Abraham is showing his faith by his works in sacrificing Isaac. 
In Romans chapter 4, verse 9, it says, By grace and not by law, that um, Abraham was justified. In chapter 4, verse 18 of Romans, it says, By divine power, not by human effort. So once again, this is reinforcing the fact that Abraham was justified by faith in Romans 4. Abraham actually believed God that he would resurrect Isaac from the dead. He actually had the, uh, the knife ready to um, uh, stab him in the heart and, and kill his son because he absolutely believed that God would raise him from the dead. But thankfully, uh, God had intervened at that time and uh, provided a ram in the thicket. Now, this word justified, in verse 21, Abraham, our father, is justified by works. According to John MacArthur, and actually looking at the, um, the context of this particular word justified, in most areas of scripture, when you look at this word justified or justified before God, it is the word acquit or to treat as righteous. But here in this particular verse, it means to demonstrate or show righteousness. So Abraham, our father, demonstrated or showed his righteousness by his works. Abraham didn't have the Bible back in those times like we do today. In fact, all he had to do was believe. So works support the reality of saving faith. Faith is cooperatively working, is cooperating with works. So faith says, I'm justified before God. Works says, I'm justified before men. Faith says, I've received righteousness. Works says, I've showed righteousness. An example of this is if you saw a, a tree, some, uh, you're, not, you're not a botanist, you weren't familiar with trees, you cannot see what type of tree that is until it actually bears fruit. And then you can say, yes, that's an apple tree or that's an, an orange tree or whatever. You can see how a tree demonstrates what it is by bearing fruit. So in verse 23, it says, and he was called a friend of God. So he, Abraham, is called a friend of God. And the, actually, the very first reference to that in the whole of the Bible is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. And that's the first time where Jehoshaphat is going into battle with the Ammonites and the Moabites. And uh, he actually was uh, speaking to God about Abraham being his friend. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And we've um, covered that pretty much back in, in verse 17. And likewise not, was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's actually quite interesting to make a comparison here between Abraham and Rahab. 
Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a, a Gentile. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. Abraham was good, but Rahab was evil. Abraham come from noble stock. Rahab was degraded. Abraham was a leader. Rahab was common. Abraham was a top-class person. Rahab was from the bottom class. Abraham was a believer. Rahab was a pagan. Abraham had direct revelation by God. Rahab had indirect revelation by God. We actually look at the uh, genealogy of Christ. We can see there that both Abraham and Rahab are mentioned. In Joshua chapter 2, uh, where um, we look at this particular passage of scripture with Rahab in verse 9, it says that Rahab knew that God had given the land and our heart did melt. So here again, once again, we have the, the mind and emotions thing. She believed that God had given the land to uh, Israel and her heart had melted. In verse 11, she confessed, she said, God is the God of heaven and earth. So she believed and at that point, was justified by her faith. And then in verse 21, she was justified by her works by sending the spies out by another way. Rahab had a very limited knowledge, but at the same time, she'd actually put her life on the line. She could have had uh, the risk of being killed for what she had done if uh, other people in the city had found out. So her faith was a, was a living faith. And Jesus says that we need to take up our cross and follow him. God is more valuable than anything else. What is the cost? True faith will reveal itself. Finally, in verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Here once again, um, as we, we look at ourselves, I've already mentioned that in our identity we're made up of body, soul and spirit. How can we be fully complete if only by our uh, spirit we are worshipping and have relationship with God? We also need to do it uh, through the body. So in the same way, it's saying here, our faith, which is remembering that it's the, uh, like the mechanism by which we have a, our relationship with God, needs to be expressed through works. So here we can, there's a, a few examples once again in the, the book of John. We can see that um, in chapter 3 we have Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was a bit like Abraham, he was the, the top of the, the pecking order, he was a righteous man in his own sight, but Christ said to him, you must be born again. What is flesh is flesh, what is spirit is spirit. 
So he must be born of the Spirit. So here is a man who thought that he was uh, right before God when actually he wasn't. And then in the very next chapter, we can go to uh, um, chapter 4 and look at the woman of Sychar. This, again, is like looking at Rahab. Here we have a woman who is a, uh, a prostitute, the bottom of the, uh, the social uh, standing. And there Jesus says to her, we must worship God in spirit. So if we don't have the spirit of God in us, how can we be a believer? So let's just quickly summarise what we've looked at today. Paul has addressed the legalists. You look at uh, the book of Romans and Ephesians. Here we're looking at um, people saying to, believe in, to be a believer, you need faith and something else. James addresses the antinomians. They're the people that believe and continue doing what they were doing and there's no sign of uh, any changed life in them. So if your life is not changed, there is doubt that you are saved. And this is not me once again saying this. This is James saying it. Dead faith is powerless to save. It is useless and it is dead. Dead faith is an empty confession. There's no changed nature and is shallow conviction. Belief in faith involves the mind, the heart and the will. Living faith was shown by three examples. We looked at Abraham sacrificing Isaac. So here we can see a demonstration of faith. We looked at Rahab in sending out the spies by another way, was actually risking her life. And as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without works is dead. So let us demonstrate our faith to men by works as Christ lives in us and shines through us. Thank you.